I'm not sure people even really care about painting. Opinions Thank you very much. It your was favorite, wonderful. Your favorite place. My favorite place. We're recording this show at night. It's, it was great because we got to go for dinner first. Shout out to the Gafford. Best food in Stewart. I didn't get to sit on my your favorite norm seat. stool Yeah, because we had a table, but everybody's there. Now, Rick Wilson, the and other they knew, day, And they knew your drink order. They knew the drink order right away. They came over and said, do you want your usual? And that had and that gave you warm and fuzzies. It's always the warm and fuzzies of the Gafford. Why is that? Why is it that a place of familiarity is your thing because it's my special pleasure and people like feeling good about themselves and I feel good about myself when I go to the Gafford don't you have places where you feel good about you yes alone did you know in this the in the bathtub by myself with no one asking for anything <laughs> well I'm not even gonna go there I'm just gonna tell you for some people it's about the food everybody knows I'm a foodie for some people, it's about making themselves look better. And today's show, Face It, You May Need a Facelift, we're having a conversation with Dr. Stephen Adler, MD, facial plastic surgeon, right here in Stewart and in Miami. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ira. Thank you for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. This is exciting. Not only is he our guest, he also tortured through dinner with us. So we appreciate your company as well. <laughs> but the thing is, we got to preview the show because we had a little practice. You know, we usually do this cold. But it, it, this may actually be even a better show. It may. Yeah, we got to kind of chat about what we were going to talk about. And I'm so excited because I think everybody has questions for class. You know, I'm, I'm excited too. And it was so hard getting Dr. Adler on the show. Dr. Adler is so busy between his two offices, one here in Stewart and one here in Miami. But let's get to know Dr. Adler a little bit uh, before uh, he tells us about what he does. Dr. Adler, Steve, what brought you to Stewart? Well, <clears throat> when I finished my fellowship, after all those years of training, as we all know, <laughs> I was interviewing with doctors all the way down the, the Florida coast looking for a job. And uh, on my way back to Birmingham, where I did my fellowship, I stopped in Stewart and visited my sister, Karen, who was one of the top uh, hand uh, therapists here. She started the OT program here a long time ago, and, she's, and she suggested to me, why don't you stay in Stewart, open your practice here? And we went at it, and I talked to my wife. I said, we're moving to Stewart, and she's like, where is Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we decided to open our practice from day one, and... Uh, We've had a wonderful time here, raised our three children here, and uh, we developed Miami, which took me down south a little bit, but it was great, great being here. So, you, what, have, so you have two so you have two practices then, two offices? I have, I have two offices. Okay, so one is here and the other is in? In Miami, in the area of Coral Gables. All right. And what year did you come to Stewart? I came here in 1997. Are you aware that Stewart used to have another name? 
No, I did not. It used to be called Potsdam. It was changed to Stewart, I believe, in 1913. Prior to that, it was called Potsdam. Look at that. Frank. Frank is now... Yeah. Uh, can I tell him about yes. your new position, yeah. Frank? Today was my first day. Frank is now the man at Main Street Stewart. Main Street Stewart promotes Stewart all over. And right. Frank knows all about Potsdam. Yeah, it, exactly right. And it got named because of the um, the railroad. The engineer would shout out Potsdam. And the women on the train were aghast because the lady would say Potsdam. And uh, so uh, they elected to use a different name for Stewart because of the way the conductor had called out the name. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. That's that's like awesome. <laughs> so I'm going to get back to Dr. Adler. If you just joined us, we're here at WSTU, 1450 AM radio, and you can stream us or you can listen to us on iTunes or on Podbean. And it's just going to be such a fun show. You have a family here. And I know you have spent, you're very family oriented. You spent a lot of time with your family. You have three daughters. That's correct. Where are they? Well, one is now graduated from uh, Georgia Tech and she's working as an industrial systems engineer for Goldman Sachs in Salt Lake City. And my second daughter, who's uh, just graduated with a math and finance major, and she is working in Hulahan Loki. And investment banking in Dallas. Wow. And then my little baby, she's 12 years old, and we're happy to have her home. Yeah. And your wife also works with you at your practice, correct? Absolutely. She's the right hand. Uh, she she's a, has a business background. She's a CPA, has a master's in finance, and she pretty much works in all the operations, uh, payroll, budgeting, She's the Every, boss. She actually pays my salary. <laughs> and you're not the only doctor in your family, is that right? You have other siblings who are also physicians? Yes, I have a twin brother, Eric, and he is also a facial plastic surgeon like myself. And he trained in the military, Walter Reed, uh, was part of the initial Desert Storm. And he is now practicing privately in Puerto Rico. And uh, he's doing good. I have an older brother who is in Virginia, in Fairfax, and he's a OBGYN. And then I have a, a, my sister, who was the head of the OT program here. Now she's now in Fort Lauderdale, heading the VA OT program. And when you say here, you mean Martin Memorial Hospital? Martin Memorial, that's correct. And for those of you that don't know, OT is occupational therapist. Uh, not, and occupational therapy differs from physical therapy yeah. because it deals with the hands more so than just gait and walking. Uh, your brother, Eric, who's in San Juan, how's he done since Hurricane Irma? Uh, they've they've ba bounced back pretty well. I mean, initially they were down for about four months, uh, but thanks uh, to he has his own generator in his facility, he was able to set up back his practice. And, uh, and basically <clears throat> everything picked up within six months to a year. So he's your twin brother, and he does exactly the same thing that you do. Yeah. Exactly. So how did that work? I mean, did you like speak to each other during training and say, you know, I think I really want to do this. He's like, you know, I think I really want to do this. Were you together at all during training? No, in fact, actually, we went to undergrad together at Washington University. And uh, and after that, we went to med school. We decided to kind of have a divorce because uh, <laughs> twins. 
we live with each other. Identical twins? We're fraternal. Fraternal. And uh, we decided it was time to break up this relationship. Right, right. <laughs> so we went to New York and I went to Philadelphia. And uh, but we kind of went on our own and, and, and then just we gravitated to the same things, which was interesting. Was that a traumatic breakup for you? <laughs> it have, was. Have you, have you reconciled? We have reconciled. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you talk about cases with each other? Do you compare compare your work? Do you say, well, I did this procedure this way? He goes, well, maybe you should try it this way. Do you guys compare? and? Oh, yes, we do notes? all the time. We're we're. we're Pretty much three to four times a week, comparing notes on certain cases uh, that are interesting, maybe a little uh, not on the normal kind. Uh, I recently went to Puerto Rico on a Saturday uh, because there's a particular procedure I do that he wanted to get more comfortable with. So he lined up six surgeries on a Saturday. I flew there at seven in the morning, picked me up at the airport at nine. By 10 o'clock, we were in surgery. We did six surgeries. He took me back to the airport at seven o'clock that night, and I was at home that evening. So, do you all you do all this in English or in Spanish, uh, or in Spanglish? We do it in English and Spanish, believe it or not. Yeah, we we do kind of both. Uh, just being there with the patients, being Spanish speaking, we did it mostly in Spanish. Now, speaking of Spanish, and I know that is your second language, you're fluent in two languages. You were born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Correct. Actually, English is my second language. Your wife is also from Puerto Rico. That's correct. And you have an office in Miami. Absolutely. The Miami office is more of an international-based clientele. What prompted you to schedule or to open an office in Miami? And do you operate in Miami? Do you bring those patients to your suites here in Stewart? I started the office in Miami about 18 years ago. And it was basically uh, because we were starting to see patients coming up here for surgery and my wife they being, found you they found me okay. so we kind of captured the opportunity to instead of having people come back and forth we would set up a satellite office in miami and we would go there once every couple weeks uh at that point it was once a month and we we build a practice from there now we're there about four times a month sometimes more depending on the days we'll work on the weekends but we have kind of a it's it's a big uh, trampoline for a lot of our practice here. We see patients from all over Europe, uh, South America, Central America. We even see from the West Coast, California, and Miami being a, a hub of its own uh, really attracts a lot of people in the industry. Now, you have this major surgical suite here in Stewart. And I've been to your office. Yeah, can you describe it? Describe it for us because as we've talked with other guests, it takes a village, and you literally have a village there taking care of your patients. Tell us about your office here in Stewart, where it is, and how many people do you employ there? Yeah, we employ approximately uh, in our practices about, I would say, 20 people uh, with some part-timers and uh, per diem employees. Uh, we do uh, have a recovery overnight facility where it's actually a registered hotel. It's called Renaissance Suites. And it is a truly registered hotel on the third floor where patients will come in, have surgery, and then they'll be discharged, go upstairs, where they have some assistance for their overnight care. And it works out really good, especially with the people coming from out of town. I love it. So, you know, when you were kind of 
you know, in training, thinking that you wanted to be a plastic surgeon, did you envision that this is what your life would look like? Did you have mentors that practiced and you kind of knew what you were getting into? Or, I mean, do all people in plastic surgery have the same intentions when they come out? Well, the, the intentions vary depending on your interests. I was, I, I've been fortunate enough in my life to have great mentors. And uh, I did have a vision of creating this basically self-sustaining facility where we have everything from the operating rooms to the recovery rooms, to the medical office, and to the overnight stay. So I did have that envision since 1997 when I completed my fellowship. And, uh, and I've had really a, a fantastic experience. It's been fun. It's been a lot of work since we have to be credentialed. We have to follow a lot of laws, regulations. So we have a, a really strong Q&A program uh, with risk management teams. So we go through the extra length to make sure that we have a safe facility where patients can come in and be assured that they're going to get the best quality and the best care. Now you're a facial plastic surgeon. So my understanding is you went to medical school, you did a residency in ear, nose, and throat. Then you did another residency or fellowship program in facial plastics. How does that differ from a plastic surgeon who does a surgical residency and then does a plastic surgery residency. What differentiates you as a facial plastic surgeon? Well, the most important thing in the difference is that the, the ear, nose and throat training is not just ear, nose and throat. It's actually head and neck surgery and facial plastic surgery and otology and basic skull surgery. There's a lot of subspecialties within the ENT. So, Certainly, you get more than just an ENT experience. Uh, so you do that for four years after one year of general surgery. So you're basically concentrating most of your training in what we call head and neck disorders and problems, which include reconstruction, cancer surgery, whether it's removing a jaw, a neck, uh, and putting it back together using rib grafts and, uh, and using all kinds of flaps. So the experience is more than just an ENT you get a lot of head and neck experience. That's basically the, the platform to then go out and do the facial plastic cosmetic surgery. And uh, in, in contrast to let's say somebody who goes to the general plastic surgery route, which basically they do approximately four to five years of general surgery and then do a specialty in plastic surgery for two years. We, we do practically five years of face and neck training. So for the listeners who have no idea what a plastic surgeon is, can you just dumb it down for all of us and explain what is the diff what is a plastic surgeon? How does that differ from any other type of surgeon? Well, a plastic surgeon is one who has uh, done at least two years requirement of plastic surgery training. And this can be done after four to five years of general surgery training. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the, the making of a plastic surgeon. They're boarded by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. From our facial perspective, we are we do the four years of head and neck training, as I call it, and then you do an extra year of facial plastic and reconstructive training. And we are boarded by the American Board of Facial Plastic Surgery. And in, in fact, both boards are considered equivalent uh, in the state boards, in the national boards, to be as, as equivalent. And uh, so they're, they're both required and they're both the training, the testing, but they're both also credentialed to do, to do the plastic surgery in their own areas. 
Dr. Steve Adler. What's your typical day like in the office? Oh, my day starts early. We operate five days a week, uh, except when I'm in the Miami office. Uh, and sometimes in Miami, I'll do some small procedures, but we start at 7.30 in the operating room every day. And we'll do on average between three to four cases a day. And then we, uh, in the meantime, after the surgeries, we see consults, we see follow-ups, uh, we do the Botox, the fillers, the non-invasives. So it's really a full day of work. And sometimes we do evening hours, especially as we are, are backlogged with our fillers and Botox. We open a couple nights a, uh, a month. Uh, and, and that's kind of a popular time because a lot of people that work like to be able to do this and not have to take time off work. Let's talk about non-surgical plastic procedures for a while because I would imagine that most patients that you see don't require surgery but just want to look a little bit better. And let's start with talking about Botox and fillers. What's the difference? Well, the, the Botox is basically uh, a, a substance or a protein uh, that basically paralyzes or relaxes muscle. Uh, it's not a real toxin, believe it or not, as people talk about Botox being a toxin. In fact, it's a protein. It doesn't cause any, any damage to the cells. So the key is that Botox relaxes muscles that lead to hyperactive lines, uh, uh, wrinkles. Uh, we use Botox for people that have uh, facial pain. We have uh, people that have TMJ. Uh, so, so Botox is not only used as, uh, in the cosmetic arena, but it's also in the, uh, in the functional arena as well. Uh, so uh, when, when we talk about fillers, fillers fill and Botox paralyzes. That's really what we do. And uh, whether you need volume, whether it's on the lips, on the cheeks, on the area of the eyes, one doesn't replace the other. And so, that's important. So to put it simply and comparatively to laundry, Okay. Botox is getting rid of the wrinkles, and fillers acts more like a starch. It, you know, it, it helps you keep your shape. You look keep, like keep, a guy that does a lot of laundry. Right? No, I don't. Why don't you just tell that's your job. I don't do a lot of laundry. I just don't like wrinkles in my clothing. Got and it. you mentioned to us at dinner that Botox has been around for about <laughs> fifty years, but why has it now come so much into vogue? Well, what's interesting is Botox. Uh, we are using it functionally for people with muscular disorders. Kids with strabismus, torticollis, uh, hemifacial spasms, where people have paralyzed faces and hyperactive muscles. And what, what happened was that people that, that were being noticed with paralyzed faces were having less wrinkles on the paralyzed side. And that's how Botox became a cosmetic phenomenon back in the late 90s. Okay, approved for wrinkle treatment in 2002. Uh, it was it was amazing. It was basically we selectively paralyze muscles that lead to wrinkles. So I would say that the expertise that you have, obviously, is to be able to listen to a patient, determine what their goals are, and then determine whatever the treatment is. In other words, I think a lot of people just think Botox fixes everything, and that's certainly not the case. And that's exactly what you do. But a lot of people are doing Botox now. And so, therefore, it's become a little bit more affordable because they can now get it, like, at the dentist's office. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I think as long – I've never been uh, one to be in, uh, exclusive, but I, I do feel that to do Botox, you got to really learn the craft. You have to understand the indications and, and, and selecting the patients correctly. 
examine the patients, and you cannot address every patient similarly with Botox. Now, fillers, there are a lot of fillers out there in the market. What fillers are currently being used, and what's on the horizon? <laughs> I'm sorry, my microphone got turned off. It's a little bit louder now. And, you know, I'm just glad it wasn't the FCC turning off my microphone. And it was, uh, Frank, do we need to go back? No. No, we're good. Just that one sentence we lost, not yeah, a whole lot? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So what fillers are currently being used? What do you like to use? And what's on the horizon? Well, when, when it comes to fillers, there's a, a lot of development in some of what we call the the artificial fillers, uh, you see the hyaluronic acids, the Restylane's, the Volumas, the Juvederms. You see some that have some of the acrylic components like the Belloteros, uh, which I'm not too crazy because you're basically injecting acrylic in the, in the face. Uh, and Article, which is a, a suture material that can cause some inflammation and reactions. You, you really need to understand the physiology of the filler before you select it. And, uh, and some are not my favorites, but the key is safety, knowing how to inject it, selecting the right patient. And that's everything. If you do all these things, the outcomes are predictable and, and good. So how do you make the distinction on what fillers needed? Yeah, well, the, first of all, there's a safety profile of the fillers. I, I believe in the hyaluronic acid fillers because they really are, are they don't really uh, elicit any reactions in the body, like some others, like the sculptures, which uh, have been seen in, uh, to, to create inf inflammation in areas of injection over a period of time. So I like to do the safe, what I call the safe fillers. And more importantly, is really understanding the facial anatomy, understanding what the patient needs, and recommending something that's actually going to help them. So other than injectables like fillers and Botox, do you do other non-surgical techniques, lasers, peels, things like that? We, we have the CO2 laser. We use radiofrequency treatments with needles, which are really minimally invasive and are very effective at tightening the skin and improving some of the texture and surface problems. The lasers, I've been doing lasers for over 25 years, the CO2 kind which is really the gold standard. And again, you have to understand the, the physics, the, the laser technology to be able to use it appropriately. We do chemical peels, which are great. And, um, and just as long as you have a lot of tools, you can select the right options. Laser versus peel. I would imagine laser goes a little bit deeper than the peel. And laser is a little bit more disfiguring for about a week, but you get better regeneration of skin after the laser over the peel? How do you decide which one is right for the patient? First of all, we look at what the patient wants in terms of results. We also then look at what the patient wants in terms of recovery. And we try to match the results that they expect to the recovery that they expect. And when you say patient's expectations of results, I mean, I would imagine that that is absolutely your craft is to try to, I mean, that's what we do, right? Is we, we try to interpret what people mean when they say certain things. So do you let people look at pictures? I mean, how, how do you help people even describe what it is that they're looking for? First of all, we describe the, the technology. We describe the science behind what we do. For example, chemical peels are basically 
uh, they're intrusive. You're, you're basically creating a chemical burn, controlled, in, in order to resurface the skin. Now, the difference between the chemical peel and the laser, for example, as Ira was asking, is that the laser adds a thermal effect, which is a heat factor, and that causes more tightening of the skin. So better results with the laser overall if you have more wrinkles and more skin damage than with the peel. You know what, Steve Adler, you're a great guest. We've got so much more to talk about. We're going to take a commercial break. We're right here at WSDU 1450. Join us back in one minute with Dr. Steve Adler. Okay, it's going really well. We haven't we haven't even covered a third of it. So. Good, good, good. Are you, you done? You okay? Oh, good. Oh, are we doing okay? So, no, am I doing okay? Yeah, you're doing great. Beautifully. Okay, so of what of what we kind of have left in our discussion, what is what is most important to you? Like, what do you enjoy talking about? What are you passionate about? What do people need to know about? And it doesn't have to be on there. Yeah, it doesn't have to be here. I, I, just, we, I just throw some pop. I thought I'd come back with uh, this here. Mm -hmm. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Cheers. Taking a break from all your work. Can we do that? Well, give it a few seconds. I'd say, you know, the, the psychological aspects of plastic surgery, how we how we are able to because it really a lot depends on, on our ability to communicate. Yeah. Uh, and, and and really how expectations and what we can do have to be met. So let's go into the psychology of plastic surgery. Or, or let's just do a little bit of like surgery. Let me just we'll say how it needs to be it needs to be more like a psychologist sure. and a psychiatrist. Yeah, but do you want to start with that or do you want to do a little bit of surgery first and then boom? Yeah, let's do a little bit of surgery yeah. first. Perfect. Okay, so, gonna, so I'm going I'm going to I'm going yeah. to comment on the cheers. Ready. I'm yes. going to comment on the cheers thing. Maybe he's gonna start with the cheers music. Let us know when you're ready. Count down from 10. Here we go. And I'll recap. All right. Stand recap. I can. Here we go. I'll recap and you go into surgery. Excellent. Taking your way in the world today takes everything you. And we're back. We just had dinner at the Gafford, my favorite place. It's my cheers. That's what makes me feel good. But for some people, it's plastic surgery. Dr. Calton, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Dr. Adler. Every week. So Steve, <laughs> Steve Adler, plastic surgeon, facial plastic surgeon. We have so much more to talk about. Let's talk about surgery. Yeah, so you were just giving us a brief overview of kind of like a non-invasive plastic approach with Botox fillers, peels, lasers, um, brow lifts, facelifts. Brow lift sounds like not a big deal. Yeah, I think we're like, oh, just a brow lift. Wait till you try one. Right. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like not a big deal. So what is it? What, what do you well, do? Well, the brow lift is an operation that, uh, that we use to raise the brows. But the main objective of a brow lift 
is more than just raising the brows, is to open the eyelids, especially with people that have low-lying brows. The myth is that you need a brow lift to raise your brows, but you really need a brow lift to open your eyes. And so this is different than a blepharoplasty? Exactly right, especially a blepharoplasty or an eyelid surgery is done to open the eyelids. But somebody with low-lying brows can be oftenly confused with having a lot of skin in the eyelids. And the wrong thing to do on somebody with low-lying brows is to do an eyelid surgery. That's not where the problem lies. Got it. And do you do those as well, blepharoplasties? Absolutely. We okay. do the blepharoplasties. We do the browplasties, the, uh, the brow lifts. And we do these endoscopically with small incisional surgery which in contrast to what we did back 25 years ago, um, our, our quicker recovery, less downtime, less swelling, less bruising, and certainly great outcomes. Leanne, yeah. I bet you didn't know that the brow lift's not done at the level of the brow. It's done up here on the forehead. Yeah, how does that work? Yes, we use telescopic equipment starting behind the hairline, and we go under the skin, and we elevate all the tissues right from the skull. Okay, and I know it sounds like a little... Like you know, you know some some sci-fi movie, but right. it really is. We operate through a visual camera and uh, and, a, and a TV screen, and we look at where we're elevating the tissues, relaxing all the tissues, releasing the tissues so that we can lift them. So it used to be that you knew someone had had a facelift when they had an incision right in front of their ear, and they always have that surprise look, like oh, the windblown look that they're always surprised. <laughs> some of the older surgeons. You could tell when those patients had had a facelift or a brow lift because, ooh, look at that lady. She had a facelift. You know why I refer patients to Dr. Adler all the time? Because his patients, people will look at them and say, you look younger. You look refreshed. They never say, did you just have surgery? His patients don't look like they've had surgery. They just look refreshed. They look younger. That is such an impressive thing, and he is the master at it. So how does the new technique change from what they did before? The new technique has changed in 25 years in the way that we look at the face now in three dimensions. And in, in a nutshell, it's really, I, I divide the face into three circles. One circle is what we lift, one circle is what we fill, and the other circle is what we re re resurface. If you look at any, any structure, it, it is involved, all these three components. You must address the right component in the right dimension, what I call the right dimension approach. If you, if you try to lift somebody that has no volume, you're gonna likely make them look artificial. If you put too much volume in someone that you have to lift, you're gonna make them too full. So you must understand what I call the three dimensions of the face. And I gave a lecture uh, about this uh, I would say about five, six years ago at an international meeting, really to help patients understand the three-dimensional part of the face. If you just joined us, we're with Dr. Steven Adler. Face it, you may need a lift. It almost sounds like you have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist to do what you do. How much psychology goes in to what you tell patients? It is most psychology and less what I call surgery, especially because that's the introduction is, first of all, we need to understand what our expectations are. 
and people comes with comes with, they come to me with all ideas about what they want but i have to understand their motive what they expect and i want to make sure that what i can do can match what they expect not overselling not telling them they're going to look 20 years younger so i can't come to you and say make me look like my snapchat filter that's not going to work for you <laughs> It's not a, start, a good starting point, let's put it that way. <laughs> Do you use any kind of technology like that to help people understand you know, uh, what you're talking about? Absolutely. I use a computer imaging where I take a picture of you and I put you on the computer. And then I actually physically use a cat to change your face in what I feel would be the right approach to your face. I do it a lot in rhinoplasties with eyelids. And I can show you why you need a brow lift and not an eyelid surgery. So, in and other words, taking their expectation and saying, you think you need this, I think you need this. Often people come in with, with ideas of what they need, but it's often wrong. Is it usually that they think they need less than they do or just different? No, most of it is misconceptions about an operation that they feel is going to give them what they want. Got it. So they come to you asking for an operation and you say, let's go back and talk about what your expectations are and I'll tell you how to get there. Yes, we start with, first of all, the analysis. I always start with a good analysis so that they can see what I see with my eyes. Uh -huh. But people can overdo it with plastic surgery also. The Michael Jackson syndrome, so to speak. How hard is it to tell patients, you've had enough. This is where I stop. Because if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. How hard is that and to express that to the patient? In fact, it's, uh, I, I did part of my, my studies in, in Beverly Hills and back in the mid-90s. And uh, we see a phenomenon, especially out on the West Coast, where people walk into the surgeon's office and say, I want a facelift. And, and boy, if you say you don't need a facelift, they're going to walk next door and the doctor next door is going to do it. So the key is... You have to stand your ground and you have to do what you believe is right. That way you can sleep at night. And, uh, and the problem is that doctors will do what some of the patients want regardless of the outcome. And then if the outcome is not good, they'll say to the patient, well, that's what you wanted. When we know better, we're the professionals. We're the guiders to these, to these patients leading them to the right Way. So this is this consultation, your typical consultation takes how long? It takes approximately 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, because you're having vague discussions about expectations from the get-go, clearing up misconceptions, making sure that everybody's on the same page. Absolutely. You're setting yourself for failure if you don't do this. And how often do you refuse to do surgery on patients? I would say that probably about 15% of the time I'll refuse to do surgery but more likely 50% of the time I re redirect them into having something that's going to actually help them when they come in with a preconceived notion of, of what they think they need. And in this area, are you able to say, get a second opinion and, and people oftentimes come back? I mean, do you have that collegiate relationship with your colleagues that do what you do? I think in our field is, is a, not as much collegiate, I would say, is more of a, of a, a competitor, as I would say, but I also... I'm very honest with my patients. I tell them, listen, go get two or three opinions. I think that's really the only way that a patient can validate and can understand, and more importantly, can know what doctor knows what they're talking about. I often have my patients ask, I know I need this done. Is there any way I can get my insurance to cover this procedure? And I usually tell them, if it's just a cosmetic procedure, 
probably not. But if you have problems with your vision because of lid lag, or if you have problems uh, breathing uh, for nasal surgery, and you might need what we call a rhinoplasty, has nothing to do with the animal, Frank. That's okay. all to do with rhino. We yeah. coming from the word nose. Got it. Okay, uh, Frank. Uh, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, does insurance at least cover some of this? Yeah, depending on the insurance, uh, they might cover excessively uh, droopy eyelids that actually cause visual field defects. We need to order the visual field exams to make sure they qualify for this. Somebody with nasal problems that are not able to breathe, uh, the insurances might cover part of the operation. So uh, certainly uh, people that have traumatic uh, problems, whether it's injuries, those will be also covered. You routinely buy their insurance, but obviously everybody varies. And speaking of, uh, you know, traumatic injuries and whatnot, that, I mean, it's not everything that you do is about beautification and uh, plastic uh, improvement. You're fixing a lot of mistakes, right? I mean, people come in with skin cancers, people come in with burns, other injuries, and you're fixing those as well? Absolutely. There's, uh, there, there's what we call the return to normal effect, where people that come in for reconstruction, uh, whether it's cancer or trauma, we're really trying to make them look normal again in contrast to the cosmetic, which is to really enhance their appearance. And um, so, so it really creates two different types of mindsets. Mm -hmm. And when you were training, did you do, did you do a lot of burn repair? We did burns. We did a lot of head and neck trauma. We did penetrating trauma, gunshots, stab wounds to the head and neck. Uh, we did car accidents. Uh, in fact, I, I used to cover during my fellowship. Uh, I was a head and neck trauma surgeon for, for one of the hospitals that covered Talladega racetrack in Birmingham. So, so I got my fair share of trauma and reconstruction on that end. Burns seem to be so devastating. And to me, it's the scarring from burns that you get thickening of the skin, loss of collagen, just horrible effects. Anything new out there, stem cells otherwise, that helps alleviate scarring from burns. You well, know, the key with with the with the burns and scars is really to to replace skin as fast as you can. Whether you use uh, autologous, meaning you take your own skin from your legs using skin grafts, or banked skin, which you can actually access now, where there's actually donor skin that you can use that's been treated so that it can form a scaffold. Uh, the key to the burns is really releasing all the contractions that actually causes distortion and also the functional problems uh, with, with facial burns especially. And certainly the reconstructive part of burns, which is using normal tissue expanders to try to replace the burned skin by actually normal skin. How hard is it to get a good color match on that? As long as you can use a head and neck as your donor site, you can actually get a great match. Uh, sometimes in the body you can actually get a good color match depending on the skin type, the ethnicity, uh, and the amount of skin that needs to be replaced. What about people that form keloid or hypotrophic scars? I mean, is this something that you battle in your cosmetic patients trying to make sure that you're... Yeah, it's not very common in a cosmetic practice to see uh, the keloids, which are basically uh, uh, scar tissue that grows beyond their normal boundaries. And uh, you, you can you see those, but very infrequently. You can treat those very easily, but you got to be aggressive from the get-go. Mm -hmm. 
So a little known fact, Leanne, about two years ago, Dr. Adler did plastic surgery on me. No way. Way. Let me tell you what happened. I had several small lesions on my face. Most of them were cysts. But I had a larger one on my nose, which was actually a basal cell carcinoma, basal cell cancer. The most common form of skin cancer, actually. But it was fairly large, so I had to have from a dermatologist, Dr. Mark Kaiser. Shout out to Dr. Mark Kaiser, one of my favorite dermatologists not, out there. Not, not as much as he's my favorite. Now I want to have him on the show. No, he's my favorite. No, no. No, we're going to have him on the show. So he had to do most surgery on my nose. Most surgery, it, it, it's not like the Southwestern restaurant. Right? Mose is actually an acronym for microscopic oriented histologic <laughs> yeah. surgery. So I had a big hole in my nose. And I felt like I only needed two holes in my nose and not one on the top. Right. Dr. Adler said, come right on over. He did a skin flap. He took skin off of my forehead, flapped it over, put it on my nose. He said, you'll be fine. And you know what? You have the perfect face for radio I have now. the perfect face for radio now. <laughs> but I did, and, and it was great. Yeah, and Dr. Adler, you don't typically say, like, your claim to fame is all your radio stars, right? Right. <laughs> right. So do you think that if I came to see you more often, I could progress to television? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the great beginning. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But, yeah, that's a good segue to our next segment on facial cancers. Yes. Uh, do you see a lot of skin cancers? And do you treat a lot of facial skin cancers? Yes, we do. We do. Uh, we talked about Dr. Kaiser, who I see a lot of his patients. And uh, yeah, skin cancer is a big problem in Florida. In fact, it's a big problem in the country. And the older the population gets, the more likely that uh, every one of us at some point in time will have a skin cancer. So yes, it's something that we see a lot. We do a lot as much as we can physically do with our time. Uh, so I have seen Dr. Kaiser do some really magical things things that I couldn't expect. So what gets to the plastic surgeon level in skin cancer care? Well, we tend to deal you with- You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you thought of that. <laughs> that's what For those of you who don't understand this, Ira wrote this show, so he's really happy I came up with one contribution. That's today. an excellent question. Jeez. Well, no, no question. The, the dermatologists do a fantastic job uh, taking cancers and doing some of the reconstructions. But we come to 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 play uh, in this arena when some of the defects are in, in, in a little more critical areas like the nose, the lips, the eyelids, uh, or even when the size is a little more excessive that requires major flaps, major reconstructions. And when you say flap, for those of us that have no idea what you mean, well, can you describe that in a way that yeah. makes sense? To yeah, a that? flap is basically barring skin from Peter to pay Paul. Okay. So you bar skin from the area to rotate or to put in into the defect, and you fix the area that you took it from. So, uh, so you basically lift up the skin, undermine it so that it's loose, and then can pull it over into an area that wasn't before. Exactly. Right, but the, the trick, I would imagine, is not to destroy the vascular supply. Exactly. Not just to destroy the vascular supply, but not to create a problem where you took the skin from. And that's where we use a lot of geometry, believe it or not, to rotate, whether using a rhomboid, which is a four-point figure, or a, or a lobe, uh, which is basically a round circle that we can rotate depending on the area of the face. 
we can actually reconstruct things pretty good. So while we're on the subject of rhomboids and Picasso and everything that's artistic, you know, one of the hardest things an artist learns to paint are ears. If you look at art, oh, you never see the ears on a person. They're never rotated to the side. You're always seeing people front on. If you look at Renaissance paintings, rare that you see ears. If an artist can paint ears, he's a great artist. Dr. Calton is a great artist. Oh, Shout out to Dr. Calton, who just painted her dad mangoes for his birthday. I saw the picture. You are phenomenal. No. Fantastic beekeeper and artist. No, no, I am not phenomenal, but I am taking art lessons from the fabulous Karen LaBelle Massingill. Another shout out. That's great. Another shout out. Local Stuart artist. She's wonderful. And anything that's good about what I do came from her. <laughs> ears. You like working on ears, Dr. Adler? I am all ears. <laughs> what, what do you like about you get any cornea because be they don't have a great vascular supply they don't have a vascular supply in fact i do two types of ear operations number one is a typical protruding ears where we have the young child uh, ages four to six years old you know even into the early teenagers where the ears are protruding we actually can do an otoplasty where we can actually pin the ears back so that they don't look as is obvious. Uh, the second operation I do is actually I take somebody with large ears and can make them into a smaller ear. Wow. And that's kind of a neat operation because I, I actually, I'm, I'm going to probably write it up because we've done this in reconstruction, but I had not seen it yet done for a cosmetic reason, which I've actually recently done on a gentleman where his ears were so big and he wanted them smaller. So I took basically a third of his ear, cut it off and actually made his ear smaller. Cool. Now, how long would something like that take for you? Uh, it takes me approximately about an hour, or an hour and a half. All right. Well, that leads me to the nightmare that plastic surgeons dread, necrosis, tissue death, and non-healing. And to me, that would be your biggest fear. Uh, in an elective procedure, is vascular disease and diabetes a big risk factor in your decision making on whether or not you're going to do that surgery? Oh, absolutely. Not just uh, diabetes, vascular disease, but people that smoke, people that vape, people that have been exposed to high levels of nicotine, which actually cause vasoconstriction or closure of the blood vessels. So it's not just a diabetic, but there's actually some, some things that people do uh, and, and those can be a problem. Uh, we also are, are, are careful with people with high blood pressure because high blood pressure can lead to hematomas, which can actually cause necrosis as well. So we can see necrosis directly from blood supply or indirectly from a complication of other medical conditions. Now the face itself has lots of blood supply. So versus, you know, versus like fingers and toes and everything else, the face has a lot of vasculature, but I'm sure there's parts of the face that aren't as well, um, that don't have as good of a blood supply, like noses and ears. So, I mean, is that what you mean? That people that are smokers may not heal from a reconstructive nose surgery or any surgery? No, I would say any surgery. In fact, some of our patients, even people that have had radiation are also people that are actually at risk of low blood supply to the areas 
and we, we are aggressive in medical management with, with the aid of their internists. Uh, we also use a lot of the vitamin Bs, like the niacins, that actually cause a vasodilatation or enlargement of the blood vessels. In fact, a lot of our patients, we will put on niacin, 200 milligrams to 500 milligrams four times a day to increase their blood supply. Niacin causes that flushing, that vasodilatory response, and it's all prostaglandin related, I believe. So on the subject of vitamins, I just have a quick question for you. I mean, do you sell products in your office, topical products and, um, you know, this is where all of our money goes to these days, right? Is buying face masks and moisturizers. I mean, is there any use for those kind of things? Yes, there is use, but my, my approach to skincare mm-hmm. is really a, a very simplistic, but very direct. Meaning that when I see patients, I try to put them on the least amount of products that are going to work. And we need to know what works and what doesn't. We use a lot of the compounding which are prescription-based, meaning you cannot buy this over-the-counter, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it has much more effective results, mm-hmm. like bleaching creams, hydroquinones, kojic acid, for people that have pigment disorders sure. or retinoids. a lot of brownish. We use the retinoids, the, the retinoic acids. We use some of the antibiotic creams that we've compounded mm-hmm. for, for uh, topical infections. We also have compounded some of topical steroids that in combination with other products are very successful. So we're, we do have some of the hydrating creams, which I like uh, instead of the moisturizers because hydrating creams penetrate the skin and they hold water. It's kind of like a sponge that holds water instead of putting a moisturizer, which basically obstructs the evaporation of water from the skin. Dr. Steve Adler, what do you like best about your job? I love how I change people's lives. That is the most exciting thing. It's not just about the face but it's about to see how their life changes after that. If a patient wants to get a hold of you, give us your office number. It's 772-546-3223. We've been here tonight. Paradox, Dr. Steve Adler, facial plastic surgeon, Dr. Talton and myself could not have had a better guest. No, it was great. Thank you so much. You have you have demystified a little bit of what you do. There's so much more. You're, you're wonderful. People love you. We need to take the fear away from us. We do. Thank you so much. And thank you out there joining us on Paradox. We look forward to you listening to our podcast. Tune in again next time for another great show. We thank you. take three loads and look at the result. So you see it's